My name is Yosko Sanov. I'm a former correctional officer who has worked in maximum security jails in Ontario, Canada. You see, although I really enjoyed and thrived in my career, I came across serious racism, corruption, and human rights violations that were perpetuated not by the inmates, but by my own law enforcement colleagues who had been sworn to protect and serve others. I had a tough choice to make, stay in silence and conform, or stand up and speak out. I spoke out and have been blowing the whistle on racism and human rights issues. Over the years, I've been contacted by many first responders telling me that I am not alone and that they too experience these same issues while working in their roles. I'm now on a quest to share these powerful stories with the public in an effort to inform the public on what is really going on in our government and how it affects us as a society. You will hear from law enforcement officers, government managers, social justice advocates, and members of the public who are tired of keeping their experiences of injustice, racism, and corruption behind closed doors. This will be raw, this will be real, this will be educational, and this will inspire others to come forward, speak their truth, and begin to heal their trauma. Let's get right into it. Welcome back everyone to Duty to Report. This is Yosko Sanov, your host and producer, and I'm glad to have you join me again. So before we begin, I want to remind you to please make sure to share and subscribe to this podcast as well. Today's podcast episode is going to take a different angle. It's quite a unique one. So far on the podcast, I've been interviewing current and former correctional officers and a manager. The podcast is currently in its infancy, and right now the focus is primarily on correctional officers, corrections issues in Ontario, raising awareness to these issues, and calling for change. I want to hear from correctional staff and give others a platform to speak and unite in their experiences, and I'm going to continue to do that, of course. However, my goal as this podcast continues is to interview other key players that play key roles in the corrections and the justice system. In the coming weeks and months, I'm going to be interviewing police officers, social justice advocates, family members of loved ones locked away, former offenders, politicians, other government staff working in the court system, and various members of the public who are deeply invested in these social justice issues. This podcast will be an incredible way for officers listening in who have experienced these same issues that I'm talking about to listen in and know that they're not alone, and at least take some comfort in that, even if they can't or are unable to speak up in their workplace at this time because maybe they fear retaliation from their superiors or their colleagues, they at least know that they're not alone. This will also be an amazing opportunity for other staff who are willing to come forward as they now have the platform to speak out and share their personal experiences, the good, the bad of everything they've had to live through and what they think needs to change and just how to do that. So I'm really excited to have police officers coming on here in the coming weeks. Those from Toronto Police and other services will be on. Um, These are people who are willing to talk about the same experiences of racism, sexual harassment, discrimination, corruption issues, and they'll be speaking about it publicly on here. We're going to keep it very real and have some very in-depth heart-to-heart discussions with cops, so please stay tuned for that. The podcast is going to focus on giving us different perspectives from different people's point of view. Now, one of those points of view that is oftentimes difficult for police or correctional officers to want to hear, if they're even willing to hear, is the offender's point of view. Too often we can become jaded and cynical in this field of law enforcement, and often we paint everyone with the same brush. I can't tell you how many times I've heard officers say an inmate's an inmate, or they're just inmates. Now at the end of the day, if we want to really understand what's going on in the correction system, we need to actually hear from those who have been on the other side of the bars as well. What's their take? What's their experience? What are their challenges? How can things change for the better from their point of view? I find it personally very fascinating and very important to give others the opportunity to speak on here as well. These inmates are people we know, people that are often our own friends, our own family, and people whose lives still do matter. Now, some of these people have committed very heinous and disgusting acts. It's very, very difficult to have empathy for that. But some people have serious mental illness. 
Some never had much of a fighting chance to begin with. And it's not so black and white. There's always more to the story of why people offend and how they got there as well. You don't have to excuse the crime or their behavior. Absolutely not. But I think it helps to dive into the psyche of why and how people got there to really understand the justice system better. It's so important to do that. We also have to be mindful that sometimes we think of inmates as these big tough guys who are completely separate of any contact from us. That may be true for many of us, but what is probably even more accurate is the fact that most of these are our friends, neighbors, and our own family members. I'll give you an example. I remember working on one of my units and a sergeant from a different facility told me that his own father was actually on my unit. At the time, I didn't tell anybody else because I just know what happens in corrections and people talk. And I just wanted to protect his dignity and his father's dignity. So I kept it to myself. But that gives you an idea that these people are still our community members and connected to us, whether through relationships or through the simple fact that they still have to come out of jail and be back in our community amongst all of us someday. Some people get a second chance and they make the best of it. They never reoffend again. They never go back to jail. They move on to bigger and better things. But we never hear about these stories. We're constantly flooded with the stories of serious crime, arrests, jail time, and repeat offenders. Now in today's episode, I want you to hear that story. I want you to hear the story of success after being given a second chance. So I interviewed Emily O'Brien. Now, Emily is a former provincial and federal offender who did most of her time in federal custody at Grand Valley Penitentiary in Kitchener. She did her provincial time at Vanier. Emily was charged with importing drugs and later handed a four-year prison sentence. Following her release, she launched a new business, Cons and Kernels. She later changed the name to Comeback Snacks, which is available in more than 60 retail locations across Ontario. She's become a successful entrepreneur, motivational speaker, and a success story. So over the next 30 minutes, Emily and I are going to be talking about what it's like to be on the other side of the bars, going through her experiences, her experiences with Ontario Corrections and Federal Corrections, what the differences are, how she got into the crime in the first place, and what she's done to launch a company, create a business, and stay out of trouble going forward. Please have a listen to my interview with former convicted offender turned successful entrepreneur, Emily O'Brien. So let's just tell people like basically how we met. Okay. Um, how did we meet? I, <laughs> I know that's what I'm trying to think of. My wife had actually come across your story and said, I think you should contact her. I'm pretty sure that was two years ago. And she was like, uh, I think she saw you on Instagram and she was like, Hey, it's a pretty inspiring story. And you know, I think it'd be cool if you guys connect and talk. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah this is our first time actually talking face to face, which is cool. <laughs> this is, this is our first time. Yes. <laughs> Oh, that's cool. Um, and then I remember just like talking to you two years ago and, and just uh, listening to this and it's, it's just, it's really neat. It's inspiring to see like where things have gone for you. Thank you. Yeah. 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 Every, every day is, um, you know, meeting new people and working with different organizations and yeah, yeah just trying to, t- trying to create different initiatives and, and ways to make, make change. Right. So sometimes really, those can be big or small. You're really being a social entrepreneur, you know, it's, it's like you've taken something that was an idea and now you're just growing it. And it's, it's really, your story is the brand. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. Yeah. Okay. So like, I, I remember like just two years ago, it was just kind of an idea. Like you hadn't really launched that much and now mm-hmm. it's like, you've, it's grown so much. So it's cool to see that. Um, so, yeah, so that, that's pretty much the background of how we met. Like, it was just, my wife was like, Hey, you know, she was a former offender in custody and then I just kind of Googled a couple of things and then we just chatted. So why yeah. don't you give us a little bit of background uh, of like who you were as an individual prior to incarceration? Um, who I was as, as an individual was kind of like the same person that I've always been. I just have different priorities now. You know, I was always kind of spunky and um, I always wanted to learn and I always like to help people. And mm-hmm. 
but at the same time, you know, I, I got caught up in like the social life and then when things go wrong and I kind of turned to substances and that's when kind of everything, my dependency on them to fix how I felt basically mm-hmm. ended up just blowing up my face. And that's kind of what I learned about those things. Right. Is and that was I, at a young age too, in your early twenties, right? I was 26 when I got arrested. Yeah. But I, I went to university and stuff. So like drinking and all yeah. that has always kind of been a part of my life. And mm-hmm. it's just like a part of life, you know, yeah. I wasn't going to go to university and just be like, Oh, I'm going to sit in the library the whole time. Like I want to go out and I met a oh, lot of people party. that way. And yeah. Yeah. So obviously things are different now and I still meet tons of people, but, um, but when you, you know, look back I, at it, I was shy back then. So like, of course I'm going to have a couple drinks and I was pretty introverted as, as yeah. and so so when you look back at it, do you think that you were trying to cope with stuff? Uh, is that what the, the drinking was? Or was it just more, I just wanted to have fun and got kind of. What it started, it was just having fun. Yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. I wasn't sad. I was shy, but I wasn't sad about anything. Right. Sure. Right. I was curious and I wanted to go out and meet people and, you know, yeah. that's kind of alcohol is, is for. I like, that, I like that video on your Instagram too, with your dad talking about you. That's a really neat video. Very, uh, wow. very endearing. Oh, thank you. It's cool. It's cool to see that he was talking about like, you know, how you've always been ambitious and driven and it's nice to see that. Right. So it's like, and and it goes to show you like anybody can make a mistake. Anybody can, can go down the wrong path. Right. So, so what led you to getting incarcerated? Like what were the big factors? Um, I would say the, the relationship that I was in for sure. And then combined with my, my difficult time with substances, um, you know, I ended up, using cocaine a lot uh in this particular period when my when i was living in limbo and my parents were going through a tough time it was really it was hard for us and it doesn't matter how mm-hmm. old you are or where you're from or mm-hmm. where you live and and when you see your family splitting apart it's freaking hard and that just seemed like the easiest way out for me was to try and just not feel anything at all and then i let people into my life who i knew there was red flags but you just want to give them the benefit of the doubt and yeah. went on a, went on a trip with him and he tells me that we're actually bringing drugs back and, mm-hmm. you know, he's already arranged for this to happen and the trip wasn't all just about fun and games. And so I just, I was oh. just confused and scared. I wanted to go home and I didn't know the criminal code. Like I didn't plan this. I was, I just wanted to go home. And so I, I was obviously very terrible at my job, which was smuggling for him and, and with him and got arrested. And I just said I had drugs on me and I so you quite literally had no idea that that was going to happen. It just got thrown on you. Okay. So he actually came over to my apartment like the week before and like asked me if I would ever want to do it. And I was so mad at him. I was like, what the hell is wrong with you? And so I kicked him out and then he messaged me like the same night being like, you know, I'm so dumb. I can't believe I even asked you that. Like, let's just go on this trip anyway. So he used my trust in him to kind of bring me there anyway. And, gotcha. and he had kind of planned it all along. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So, so you go on this trip, you bring the stuff back and then you get caught. Is, was it the first time that you got caught or was it multiple times? Yeah, you- no, I'd never done it Very before my life. <laughs> never. I get nervous enough going through the, the CBSA when you're, everything's fine. You're like, ah. <laughs> That's true. So you're going across the border and what happened? And then um, we, came, we came back from St. Lucia and I had two kilograms strapped to my body. Mm. And then got arrested and placed in a holding cell and then formally arrested by the RCMP. And then I had to spend the weekend in jail because I wasn't allowed to go home um, without like getting released to an assurity, which was pretty much only my parents at this point. And then I had to live at my mom. So move out of Toronto and for two and a half years, it was so long Mm -hmm. and grueling, but it was during that time that I 
really realized that I had to take it responsibly responsibility for certain things and turn mm-hmm. this into something good. It was straight jail time, right? From there? Um, after I pled guilty, yeah, we after kind of came guilty. up. We did a joint submission with the defense or with the defense, the um the crown. And so when the lawyers submit a joint submission, it's um the judge is usually just likely to agree. So mm-hmm. I didn't really want to fight it. Um, you know, there's I knew that, that I was guilty of certain things and guilty meaning I didn't address the substance abuse in my life. And I, I was guilty in the sense that I that I trusted him. And could I have done more when I was down there? I don't think so, because I was already on that trip. And some mm-hmm. a lot of people think, oh, I you can that's what never happened. Yes, it could happen to literally mm-hmm. anyone. And the second mm-hmm. we're in these situations, you just you just want to go home. And that seemed like the safest option for me. What would you say to somebody who's in a similar situation? Like what, what advice would you give them if there's another woman that's in that exact same situation? Um, what, what part of the journey are we talking about? Yeah, that's true too. Uh, well, just like if you're in that situation, that same situation where your, your partner at that time basically tricks you into, into bringing substances back, what, what options do you really have? That's the thing. Like the more people that I've talked to, it's like some, when you're in another country, it's really hard to do something. Um, and especially if you trust the person that you're with, or you can only trust the person that you're with and you just want to go home. Like, you yeah. know, that's why I try to talk about my stories because like, if I had, you know, maybe not even gone on a trip with him, like I shouldn't have just trusted the fact that he decided he, like he told me basically after, okay, I feel stupid for asking you, like, this isn't going to happen. But I think like the second that I saw that red flag, I should have just been like, no, this is not, not good. So, and there's usually um, a lot like, of red flags prior to anything, like, Huh? There's usually a lot of red flags prior to, right? Like in just yeah. relationship red flags. Would you say that that's, that's something that you just look for prior to get the help that you need before you actually go on, go on a trip to begin with. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. And I traveled a lot by myself and this was the first time that I traveled with him. Right. And so mm-hmm. I don't right. know, I was used to traveling by myself. And the, when I was with him, it was like, kind of like, I was like stuck with him. Right. So and then he had booked the tickets. So like, I felt like I like had to stay for the trip. And he said that the drug smuggler people already knew that I was doing it. And whether these are true or not, like when you get pulled into that world, right. you just want to go home. And so That's, I didn't want to yeah. be, I didn't want to be protesting to a drug cartel in another country. Like what are you supposed mm-hmm. to like? So right. Right. For I sure. Just, I was like, all right, I'm going to try. And I told him I really didn't want to do it and mm-hmm. failed. Wow. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's quite interesting just thinking about it, picturing myself in that same situation or like, what, what would you do? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so that led to your incarceration two and a half years at 26, right? Yeah. 26 years old. So you obviously would have had to go through provincial at, uh, at one point or did you go? Yeah. Yeah. So I ended up like my house arrest was two and a half years and then I pled guilty to a four year sentence. So that started in 2018. And then I had to go to provincial for like the processing or whatever, because they have buses that go to the federal camp twice a month. And so it really depends on when you get there. Sometimes you'll get lucky and you'll leave the next day, or sometimes, you know, you just missed it. And now you got to wait another half a month in provincial, which is hell. Like it's it's quite different, right? Maxed out. um, Very food's horrible, overcrowded, understaffed. Understaffed. Yeah. Barely get provincial jail. Did you have to go to? Um, I was in Vanier. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, I was there for about 10 days. So yeah. And then you yeah. end up going to it's federal handcuffs, like chained to each other. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What federal uh, institutions you go to? Uh, Grand Valley. in Kitchener. Grand Valley, Right. That's right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. What, what would you say for those people that don't know what provincial and federal, what are the main differences? I mean, besides like uh, time of sentence and, and, and the crime that you committed and stuff like that, but 
what would you say as an, as being on that side of the bars? Like what are the main differences? Um, the staffing, the treatment, um, the space, the food, um, you know, how they, they sleep deprive you a lot in, in fully cause they don't shut off the light. So you can't actually get a good sleep at all. Mm. Um, exercise is more limited as well. And like, because my sentence was two years over two years, that's why I was sentenced to federal. But if you're anything under two years and you're in, in provincial, and to be honest, if I had to choose, I would have stuck with federal because that's what I always hear. Yeah. 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 It's kind of a little bit more independent, I guess. Right. You get, um, uh, would you say that the treatment is better? Like the actual programming itself as well? Yeah. There's more programming for sure. in in federal. Yeah, for sure. So and it's um, easier to do the programming because people are there longer for longer sentences as well. Right. They're not coming. Yeah. Anymore. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of like the culture of corrections, you kind of mentioned it, like with the staffing issues and stuff, what, uh, what, what would you say, like your experience with the culture of corrections in general is like, you know, a lot of the things that I've been advocating for the racism, the harassment, the corruption that goes on. A lot of times I talk about like how it's staff on staff, but it's also staff on members of the public and staff on offender as well. Right. Cause I have seen that and use of force and abuses towards offenders. Um, have you seen that? Or like, what is your general impression of correctional officers and that? Definitely in provincial, they were so rude. Yeah. So, and even when you're nice, you know, um, obviously if you are going to kind of be reactive or combative to the guard, that's not good. And that, again, that can be stemming from, from trauma or stemming from, be, from being lost. It doesn't mean you're a bad person because you are acting out in there. It just means you're, you're trapped and you don't have any support. So mm-hmm. um, moving into yeah. federal, like they actually, they do talk to you more. You're actually assigned a, an officer that helps you along the way, even though I didn't really meet mine that often. It's more of like the thing they have on paper, but um, okay. I think they, they told, in my experience, the guards in federal were like a lot nicer and more supportive mm-hmm. of things. So, oh, you're, you're definitely going to have your guards that, that aren't like there's, I mean, there's so many of them. Right. So, but in my opinion, I think most of them were, were nice and they tried to help. And when I was writing blog articles, they would like enjoy reading them. And, um, but then there's someone that would just like play pranks on you and, and fuck with you. Right. Like mm-hmm. one time they booked, they, they knew my parents were divorced and they booked my parents to visit on the same day. Right. Mm-hmm. So like, obviously it was like super awkward. And then they, they told them like my boyfriend that I was seeing that I was like having all these guys visit and like, I have a lot of guy friends. And then they, they told him all this stuff. And it was like, well, like, he's, he's my friends. Like, what are you trying to insinuate here? Right. Mm-hmm. So it was, they just made it like super awkward. And it's um, privacy issues, right. Where, where it's really none of their business that so they have to tell people that. Oh yeah. Well, they so will. It's going yeah. above and beyond. So that's in federal. So like your, your stay in provincial was pretty short, but you still got that impression. Like it was still that, yeah, they were so negative rude, for like, you. they just expect you to know everything. And then they like yell right. at you when you don't know it. And I mean, somebody like you who is first time offender, like how would you know the, the the rules of, I think people don't realize that it's not easy to know. It takes time, right? You're coming into yeah. a unit and then there's there's the inmate rules and then there's the officer rules, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Exactly. You just don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Would you say in your, in your time in corrections, because you've spent a couple of years altogether, would you say that like, do you believe that some of these human rights violations do exist? Like the way that offenders are treated in terms of like actual racism or yeah. corruption in general, would you say that it does exist and like how prevalent it is it? Yeah, I think so. Like, I mean, I, I know that um, like in my experience, like I was never, I was just treated a way that I kind of was expected to be treated. Like, obviously you're in, you're in prison. So it's like, I know right. it's not going to be, they're not going to be freaking nice to me. All right. But right. I think some of them, went above and beyond to be extra mean to, to certain people, like certain crimes that were committed by individuals in prison 
like things were done to them. Like they, their rooms were messed up and um, just very like, not, not very nice stuff. Like if you have, you have to do your job. Okay. But you don't have to go above and beyond to really hurt someone. Uh, and, absolutely. And, absolutely. Yeah. 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 It's that bully mentality, right? It's like superiority complex as well. Did you ever, cause from my experience, what I didn't like about it, um, what really began turning me off is that depending on the facility, depending on how things are ran, it can actually be like us versus them mentality, right? Correctional officers versus orange. And it's, it's really not about that. Everybody knows that the officers are running, running the facility and managing it and keeping everybody safe and all of that. Mm -hmm. But it's like, there's, there's this power dynamic and um, people really get, they get a kick out of it, you know, and and you see that subculture and you see kind of like the Stanford experiment, right. With people just jumping in and doing certain things and abusing offenders or um, just recently, I'll give you an example of something that happened, which is uh, which I'm going to talk about on the podcast as well. But um, at my old facility, somebody has reached out to me and sent me uh, pictures and video clips of actual offenders that managers and staff were mocking. So what mm-hmm. they did is they took their Otis, like their, their picture, their Otis picture, and they blew it up and created memes of different people, whether it was a, whether it was a sex offender, whether it was somebody who was overweight, uh, somebody with mental health. And then they put certain staff names on there and saying, happy birthday, diddler from the diddler. Yeah. And that's, that's on the actual sergeant's walls at the facility I worked at. So <laughs> when you're doing stuff like that, it's a form of, verbal abuse it's a formal form of um punishing offenders even that much more what do you think things like that do uh from your perspective right on the other side what do you think they do for rehabilitation or for for stopping like that work nothing i think it's acting like children or or worse you know um obviously if you're struggling with something and most the majority of people in prison have suffered through immense trauma right Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm it's always rooted in, in, in trauma or, or poverty. And so the fact that they keep perpetuating this kind of abuse just makes it worse. Right. Exactly. And yeah. like, there's one definition of, of tough love and then there's like a, there's like abuse. Right. There's so abuse. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think for me, like, because I just didn't really, I think they didn't really come after me because I just wouldn't care, you know, but then there's people that, you know, that they were really suffering. And sometimes you saw like them treat those people the worst. And it's a shame, right? Because you might have somebody that's coming in for their first time. They're 18, 19 years old, first offense ever. This is really their first impression. You're kind of the first line of defense in helping somebody rehabilitate because mm-hmm. the police don't do much in terms of connecting with you other than the initial charge, right? And yeah. then you're you're locked in and you're spending these 12-hour shifts with, with offenders, right? So really, you're that first line of actually trying to help somebody and making a difference, whether they need mental health support or referrals and, and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So, um, yeah, no, I just was curious, like what you think it does like a trickle down effect when you have these abuses from what I've seen, it just seems to just make everything worse. It makes the entire range. It makes the units more tense. It makes people have a distrust of correctional officers. It turns like us versus them. And ultimately it's not good for rehabilitation. Right. Yeah. And I think some of them like it that way. Right. So, and because there's like no repercussion for their actions, very little, at least repercussion. Like even if you look at all the abuses within the CBSA on people, well, it's like, oh, we're going to have our internal body review this. Exactly. And it's like, well, so it's like they can keep doing whatever, whatever they want and everything just gets ignored or not even exactly. addressed. They can do favoritism and conflict of interest and none of that stuff seems to matter. Right. They just kind of, yeah, yeah that, that's, that's very true. I think that's what people don't realize about government 
law enforcement agencies in general, whether it's OPP, whether it's, uh, you know, corrections, or like you said, CBSA, all of these places investigate themselves and people don't realize that they, they just assume that there's a program where like somebody does something wrong, they're going to get investigated, but it's not, it's, they're getting investigated quite literally by oftentimes their own spouses, their own family members, their own friends. So nothing yeah. happens. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And you even saw it like, uh, I think there was a, poli- a Hamilton police officer last couple of weeks ago that was, you know, convicted of sexual assault and then he got paid leave. Right. Yeah. So it's like, yeah. where else can you do that? What other job? Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Um, and, uh, so, yeah, so that's what I was going to talk to you about the trickle down. Do you believe that, um, just, just from being on the other side of the bars, right? Like, do you believe that as it stands right now, there is appropriate rehabilitation correctional facilities? I know this is something we wanted to talk about as well. Um, no, I don't think so because I think they, most rehabilitation, like for me or like a lot of people, it starts with like trauma first and in corrections, it starts with what you did first. And so you can't really get to the root of something without actually getting to the root of something. And then they also, all their programs, they just put everyone in, in a black box or trying to make it seem like you had all these other problems when, when really you didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was, I think there needs to be a different approach to substance abuse, right? Like I think in, in prison, they just have AA and NA and that's not necessarily for everyone, which is why I'm, I'm actually working on something called them. I'm bring, working on bringing the seventh step program into Ontario. So it's like people that have used substances and gotten in conflict with the law. And it's not like, oh, you have to be like completely abstinent. Cause like, I'm going to have a couple drinks again in my life. Like I'm not, I don't think alcohol mm-hmm. had all this power over me that I can never be around it again. And like, I don't really believe, believe it can. And so that, that's kind of like the program that I think could help a lot of people. Like you can go through a shitty part of part in your life, do something too much and then be like, okay, this isn't the right thing to do. And then still live with those things in a way that's, fine right so that's just, is, that, is that a program that's in the states right now it's or actually out east. Yes. out east okay out east yeah and okay. so I'm, I'm actually studying the meetings right now and then we want to bring it into vanier amazing so what what's the success rate like what are the stats on it that part i don't know but it's like an ongoing program so okay. it's like people will go every week or, or every other week and right. the structure is similar to a but it's not exactly like aa because it, right. it welcomes everyone and it's, it's ties in particular to like conflict with the law, which is, yeah. which is really interesting. You know, I, I don't know if you know, but I was actually a program officer. So I got a chance to teach these classes, like uh, the life skill classes and like the anger management and substance use um, to offenders yeah. in provincial. And I used to kind of laugh to myself and think to myself, like these guys should be teaching these classes. Like people know so much about substances. Like, why am I teaching that? We should be having the appropriate people teaching some of these classes that are more appropriate. You know, I could see myself doing certain ones that I'm experienced in, but not, you know, like if you're, if you're doing like being an effective father, for example, but you're not a father, yeah, <laughs> it makes it very challenging to run these classes. Right. Or, or doing substance use, but you've never used substances and you've never yeah. had that trauma from it. It's, it's yeah. very difficult. Um, so, yeah, I've always felt uh, the programs were, were very, very outdated and they were very much um, uh, from, from the top. They just came down from the top, from management, from people above in the ministry. And mm-hmm. whenever I would try to make a suggestion. So, for example, I tried to incorporate music. I want to do music therapy, like hip hop poetry. And the, I, I took like a petition down from all of the offenders. And I just wanted to survey them. Like, what do you guys think about doing hip hop and expressing yourselves and talking about trauma and, and doing it in a way where it's like a group dynamic? People loved it. But of mm-hmm. course, the ministry says no. 
And then it's like, you try to do something like in the effect, being an effective father uh, class. I wanted to add a little bit of a, of a rap song. There's a rap song by LL Cool J called father. And I wanted to add that so that we can talk about uh, people's trauma because it was a very, very emotional class. And the moment that I did that right away, you're in trouble again. So you quite literally just have to do a 30 minute presentation with just slideshows and talk about something that was done from so long ago from somebody who doesn't even work with the offenders on the unit today. And every offender base is different, right? Mm -hmm. Across every single jail and across the province. If you go to Windsor, it's a completely different dynamic than Maplehurst, than Toronto South or, you know, federal. So you have to kind of change it up to, to, to gear to your offender base, right? Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And like the, what I liked about federal is that they did have like a a lot of programs, but again, they were were just like so cookie cutter and right. I think there needs to be a more like evolving system. And even when they had like some kind of like entrepreneurship classes in there, the stuff was just like, so over everyone's head. I was like, I was like, I couldn't even start my own business with this. Like, like, well, let's do like some financial forecasting. Like that's not the basics of (laughs) Started with it, like you need to have financial people, people don't even have a checkings and savings account, they don't even know what they're talking about, right? Yeah, <laughs> I remember the offenders telling me I had to do a budgeting class, and they're like, uh, they're like, boss, I don't have a bank account, how do I get a bank account? And you're like, oh man, okay, let's go back a couple steps. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. It's just like starting from from, yeah. from scratch, basically. And yeah. a lot of people still are released with, with no ID, and exactly. It's, it's crazy. I remember there was a girl that was in Hamilton and she, she got transferred from Edmonton and then she was living in a halfway house in Hamilton and she, she was under sentence and they do, then she didn't have any ID and she had no clue how to get it. They weren't helping her. She's right. in the city. Her kids are in Edmonton. She has no idea where to go. And it's like, well, you wonder why people panic and, and, and reoffend. Yeah. It's because oh, they're sure. alone. They're all sure. alone. And they've lost all their supports and all their systems usually. Right. Yeah. Like they, they have nothing when they come out. Yeah, I know I've seen it so many times. AD, admission and discharge, always losing something or doesn't hand it to them. It's so disorganized. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, w- what do you think would need to change then besides the seven step uh, program in general? What do you think would need to change for, for like, for there to actually be effective rehabilitation? Um, I think, I think people, if people need to are addicted and physically addicted, they need to go to, rehab first. I think the rehab needs to happen first instead of yeah. just the punishment, I think, but they do have rehab programs for some like mandatory rehab for some people Then they yeah. have, but they go after and it's like, well, why didn't they go before? And then they can really think about how these substances Absolutely. impacted their, their, but you can't go if you're like addicted to something yeah. and, and they're keeping yeah. you on these drugs in prison. And you're, and you're on withdrawal or you're on, some, on, on something else. Yeah. Yeah. They just for keep sure. you medicated. Like if you are acting out or something, they'll just like give you these pills and put you on these pills to make you like a zombie. And then you see people you could tell that are just, or go to seg. Yeah. Or go to segregation possibly. Yeah. 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 No, very good point. Yeah. There has to be the rehabilitation first, clean the person up, right. Get, get them a yeah. chance to get clean and think straight and then, and then go through the actual programming pro- properly so they can process it. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So let's talk about the business. Like, so the, Initial idea came while you were at Vanny then? It, it happened while I was actually in Grand Valley. So like I knew okay. that I was going to build something. I didn't know what it was going to be. Like a, some okay. people were like, oh, write a book. And I just didn't feel like I was worthy of that. I was like, well, I haven't done anything. Like I don't really want to write a book. Like it just felt really very like, narcissistic to just write a book. Right. And so I want to build something like, cause I liked building things and mm-hmm. I like building things that, that matter. And mm-hmm. You know, I didn't know what that was going to be when I was in there, but then I kind of, after being in there for a couple of months and talking to people and realizing how insecure people were about re-entering the workforce, just because they honestly felt so unwanted and 
undeserving of employment or they didn't know what their skills were. And I saw like the like, real humans in there. And so food was something that brought people together always in, in prison. And some, we'd have like, you know, um, different kind of like theme nights and where people would cook foods from their own culture and stuff. And one time we were having, um, we were having like a Super Bowl and then Super Bowl kind of gathering, like people were just coming, hanging out. And there's, we were putting different like spice blends on popcorn and popcorn was like one of my favorite things. And I also liked it because growing up, I, one of the things that led to my substance use was actually like an eating disorder. It was like a concurrent thing. And I didn't really want that to be reinstigated or like have it come up again in prison. Cause you know, you're in a small environment. Um, there's not much to do except for eat, you know what I mean? And like limited exercise. Absolutely. And I was like, Oh God, this is the perfect recipe for this to like, just mm-hmm. come flare up again. And, and I didn't want to let that happen. I knew that it, I was determined to like not. And so actually created healthy popcorn recipes inside. And, and then I wanted to turn it into a business when I really thought about how many people were deserving of work and proving not my story, but everyone's, everyone's worth that has been incarcerated. Um, so right know, off the bat, you just knew that you wanted to make it into a business. So was it like the product was good enough? Like, was it? The the purpose was good enough. You know, I wrote yeah. about it every day. I talked to even staff, the staff members about this. They loved it. I talked to the parole board about it when I was having my mm-hmm. parole hearing and, and they liked it. So this is like, this was a plan like since March of 2018. And th- there was so much that I could do in there. You know, I started researching, doing reading books. I had, in research from the internet sent into the prison and, you know, people would cut off the web links so that it didn't look like it was from the internet. Cause if it was sent from the internet, that's apparently like that's same breaking some law, you know? And so, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, so I'd have them repurpose articles. And so I could p- start to build my plan. Mm-hmm. And part of building that, that plan was really learning about other people, people's stories as well. And just all the misconceptions about people that, that were in there. And, you know, there's obviously everyone's there because we did something wrong and we have to be willing to address what you could have done differently, but also how often the cards weren't in your favor and you were just do, you just did something to get out of something or you have significant trauma and mental illness to go with that. It's more than just a label. That's what you're saying. There's always a story behind it too. Yeah. Yeah. So it's neat because you're there and you're, giving yourself a purpose, right? Because I know how hopeless it can get for offenders because I've been on the other side having to go into some bad situations, right? But so it basically gave you a purpose to give other people a purpose. And you knew right away that you wanted to brand this and make this something bigger than just mm-hmm. yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So where Absolutely. does it stand today? Like how, how has it grown? It's good. It's good. Um, we're, we have, we're in almost 300 stores now. We ship it all across Canada and the US. Wow. We have different kinds of distributors who store it at their warehouses and then people can order it for their store through there or through um, sometimes we'll do like direct stuff. Um, we, our e-commerce has grown and every day we're building, we're cre- creating ways to build the mission. So like I work with people that are preparing for prison that have come out of prison, people that are struggling with starting a business or want to start a business. So, cause um, that's truly what gives me like joy. It's like the popcorn's like amazing and popcorn is something that never going to go away. Right. And, but, so you have to make sure that like, you're still living up to like those things. And because I have this lived experience, it's like, I, I know. And like, that's like my bread and butter. So it's just seeing like how even like the smallest little gesture can really help someone. And, you know, you don't have to do giant things all the time. Like it's important to build, build things obviously that align with your mission and and make sure you're walking the walk and not just talking the talk, but you'd be surprised like how many messages I get that say like, Oh, I read the back back of your popcorn and it gave me so much inspiration. Right. So mm-hmm. it's like, Oh, that, that's awesome. Right. So it's, 
Absolutely. It's good. And it's not just people that like have been to prison or have substance abuse. It's people that can come back from any difficult time in their life. And that's kind of why we changed it from cons and kernels to comeback snacks. Comeback snacks. Yeah. So just kind of to inspire hope, to inspire that anybody can come back from. Yeah. But you got to work at it. You know, they're not easy. Right. So you do have to address things that you could have done differently because comebacks aren't handouts. I want to know what's been the reaction from other offenders, other people that are in custody or have left custody. Like how have they seen this? Really good. Really good. I get letters from jails all the time, but I'm not allowed to write them back yet because I'm still on parole. So, you know, if I wrote back, I'd be accused of communicating into the prison. Right. (laughs) Right. So, and when you say really good, it's more like, are they inspired or is it, is it that they want to join like with you or they want to start? Yeah. They want to be part of it. They they love it. They're, they feel close and and connected and they, they, they love reading the stuff like they see on the news or something. And so like that, that's awesome. Right. It's kind of, they take pride. Like this was one of ours, right? This is somebody that represented our subculture, our group, and they've done something bigger with it. Yeah. And it, and it's not just getting a job, but it's creating jobs. It's creating your own opportunity. Yeah. And it can't be censored. Like I'm not, you know, when I was in prison, I was extremely censored. You know, I couldn't talk to the media. I could barely have like, you know, you barely have visitors. And now it's like, I'm not afraid to share this anymore, but because it's been good, it's all been good. I'm not coming out there angry, like, you know, kicking my heels and screaming. Like, it's like, okay, yeah, this, there's things that definitely need to change, but changing it through anger and and hate and it just didn't work. Things never work that way. So you, you change things by doing things productively. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well said for sure. So have you opened a store as well in Hamilton? Yeah, I have a store. Um, it's, it's like a small little retail store that's open during the week. Um, but I share the downstairs retail with a, a friend of mine. So he's there most of the time. So I'm never like really there, but it's kind of like, it tells a story of like going into prison, what it was like. And we have the comeback kind of timeline on there and we have resources for people to read more because people don't necessarily know the real things about it. Right. And, mm-hmm. and how much work it actually takes to, to restart your life. And sometimes yeah. you have no resources. And so you, you do, you do need help. And it's yeah. so easy to forgive people that, you know, right. Like I call it proximity forgiveness because it's so easy to forgive someone, you know, or someone you love, but if it's a stranger, it's very easy to hate them and shut them out. Mm-hmm. And judge so them just for, for the crime in the title. Yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. For sure. It is very true. What's the key message then? What do you want people to take away? Just members of the public listening in. I would, I mean, I have like lots of messages, but I think like the key message is that everyone deserves a comeback if they, if they want to try. And like I said, comebacks aren't handouts. They aren't easy. They take a lot of work. Um, But once you do put in the work and you help others and you can, you can really, really do great things. And that trumps everything. Mm -hmm. It trumps every negative comment and trumps every you know, agency, not letting you, not trying to let you do something and just living your best life because you can actually be yourself and you don't have to hide anything. Yeah. You can always make it right again by doing that too. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Awesome. So yeah. So where can people find the product? I just want to mention that as well. Yeah, sure. Uh, Comebacksnacks.com or uh, our our social media is at Comebacksnacks and you can kind of check out our website. It talks about all the stuff we do, mission related stuff that we're working on and stuff we have planned for the future comebacksnacks.com and it's at Sobeys as well and Sobeys we just finished a five-year promo so now we got a or sorry five five week promo and yeah. so now we get to figure out if we're going to turn that into a permanent listing or not but I, I honestly love talking about my local retailers because those because, people yeah. like you know they are your bread and butter they're going to talk about you um so because they are truly your biggest fighting force and yeah and have you been able to employ other uh people that have come out of custody as well yeah yeah. yeah. And we also work with employment agencies now too, that, um, hire people that, 
you know, they have access to like a whole number of different number of employers. So whenever we get requests and they know that people that are requesting work from us are those that have, have records. And so the, those partnerships are, are great as well. That's so. amazing. That's amazing. You set that up. That's awesome. How yeah. many people do you think you've employed to date? So, um, it's like seven or eight, I think at least yeah, amazing. Seasonal, people come in and do contract stuff. And then we got like full-time. Awesome. And yeah. Got That's a bunch awesome. of volunteers and so That's beautiful. it's always changing, always evolving. Yeah. That's great. And then, uh, yeah, I just, I think, I, I think that's pretty much it. I would, the only other question that I would really want to know is if there's one thing that you wanted to tell somebody who's, who's kind of like in custody right now, um, who's struggling, maybe it's their mental health or maybe it's addictions. What would that be? What advice would you give them? Um, sometimes you just have to live in hell for so long that you don't want to live there anymore. And I, that's what I found with mine. Like sometimes you do have to be at your worst before you can climb out and it's only going to be you that can do it. Like no one lecturing you or trying to give their advice is really going to work on, it didn't work on me. And so just realize that you can't live there and you can't, it's very hard to live your a strong, authentic, best life and happy life with those things. So I and think we all deserve it. We all do. We all deserve it. Yeah. So you almost have to hit rock bottom sometimes. That's what, that's what you think it is. And you have to come yeah, to You got to roll around in it. You got to get yeah. dusty in the rocks. Yeah. Oh. And you're like, hell no, I don't want to be here anymore. Yeah. So that's awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Emily. Honestly, it's nice to connect with you. Nice to finally meet you in Me person. Too. And that wraps up my interview with Emily O'Brien. I found it very interesting talking to Emily and hearing about her take on the issues and corrections and what can change, but also just hearing what advice does she have for other people in the same situations. If you also want to watch the video, the full interview with Emily, I've uploaded it to YouTube on a channel called Duty to Report. I'm going to provide the links for this below, and please feel free to share them with anyone you want to. I do agree with the advice she gave. I think it was great advice. Sometimes you just have to hit rock bottom. You have to get to that point where you know you need to change and are ready for it. And you're at that point where you can't do this anymore, so you have to change for good. It's also not that easy. The system is a revolving door. There's so many issues and lack of supports along the way in some parts of our justice system, including correctional facilities. As you hear from Emily, each facility has a different type of culture to it. And based on that culture, that also affects opportunities to rehabilitate and support people coming out and getting back on the streets. The truth is that some people also don't ever want to change and they won't change. But for those who do, there's more that corrections can do to be effective. I hope you found that interview interesting, and I'm a big fan of anyone who takes a negative experience in their life, turns it around to do something positive and something cool with it. The fact that Emily has branded her story is pretty cool, but the fact that she is now hiring other people, coming out of jail, and trying to create a business that employs prisoners is even cooler to me. It's not just about the popcorn, and anytime someone does something bigger than them and stands for something that makes a difference for the greater good of others, I'm always going to back them, regardless if you're an offender or an officer. Now, my next episode, I can assure you, you will not want to miss this. In my next episode, I interview Robert Ranger, who goes by Bob Ranger. This will be a podcast that will be very real, very raw, and his story and the pain he has encountered for standing up for his own individual human rights as a correctional officer will be one that listeners will likely be in complete shock of. Ranger is a gay OPS employee who was a former correctional officer from the Ottawa area. He experienced severe racial discrimination, slurs, and bullying and harassment at the hands of the government's own management and his own colleagues. His fundamental human rights were violated. His entire life has been altered for simply taking a stand against the Ministry of Corrections and fighting to have his situation investigated and dealt with. Now, Ranger has the biggest GSB award in a landmark decision that you can find this online. And in the history of the Government of Ontario, this is the biggest GSB award. 
He has set a precedent with his fight and his win. However, it's come at a cost. This fight has taken 30 years and it's still not over. 30 years after submitting a grievance and fighting for his human rights, Bob continues to fight in court for his dignity and the protection and awareness for others like him. Bob will be on here to talk about his story in detail, his trials and tribulations, what he's learned, how he's been affected exactly, and where he is at today. Now, I can't wait to share this interview with you all, so please stay tuned. Please subscribe, like, and share. You can find more content if you search Duty to Report podcasts on Instagram, Twitter, and videos on YouTube. All the links are provided in the summary of the episode below. Thank you so much for tuning in, guys, and I can't wait to have you listening again soon. God bless.